It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You all right? <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. So we've got new hairstyles and maternity flight suits. Pregnant women are going to fight our wars. It's a mockery of the U.S. military. What we absolutely won't do is take personnel advice from a talk show host or the Chinese military. All right, Sandy Rios with you. That's what happened earlier this week. And it all came after a statement by Joe Biden, an appearance that he made addressing women in the military. First, you heard Tucker Carlson commenting on what Joe Biden said, and then you heard John Kirby, spokesman for the Pentagon, counter that by saying that they're not taking advice from a talk show host. All right, well, let's talk about this for a second. First of all, I think it would be very helpful if we listen to President Joe Biden and his statements about how he feels about women in the military. Let's listen. Neither of these incredible generals is resting on her laurels or on her stars. They're using their voices and actively working to change policies in the military to make it easier and safer for more women, not just to join the military, but to stay in the military and to thrive. I'm incredibly proud that in 2015, under the Obama-Biden administration, we took the final steps to open up all positions in the military to anyone qualified to serve in them. The women who joined today's military aren't told no when they apply to fly fighter jets or attack helicopters just because of their gender. They aren't told no when they want to apply to ranger school or infantry officer basic training. But they all know that there's much, much more work to be done to ensure that women's leadership is recognized and we have more diverse leaders. We reach the top echelons of command for all who are qualified, including all women, all women, and that all women feel safe and respected in our military, period. You know, some of, some of it's relatively uh, straightforward work where we're making good progress, designing body armor that fits women properly, tailoring combat uniforms for women, creating maternity flight suits, and updating updating requirements for their hairstyles. And some of it is going to take an, uh, you know, an, an intensity of purpose and mission to really change the culture and habits that cause women to leave the military. That women are making sure more diverse candidates are considering being considered for career advancing opportunities at every single level. The women aren't penalized in their careers for having children. That women aren't just token members, but integral parts throughout all branches and all divisions. And that they can completely, fairly, 
engage in promotion, compete all across the board, including on the uh, on age and gender neutrality and physical fitness tests. All right, that was uh, President Joe Biden announcing, you know, the sort of aim of the new administration, and it's a continuation of what uh, started happening under President Obama. The Pentagon has been radicalized, uh, and they have been radicalized in part by feminist uh, soldiers. It's not the rank-and-file women. Uh, I've been following this for a number of years, and because I'm a woman, by the way, I feel free to tell you how I feel about this. Uh, my understanding, because I've been following it for a number of years, is it is the female officers in the military who've been pushing for this because they cannot get uh, advancement in the ranks if they can't have combat experience. It's not the rank and file. When you ask the rank and file women if they want to go into combat, they don't want to go. Many of them drop out. Uh, women don't have a good track record with you know staying the course, especially when they are assigned to combat roles. And so, uh, but President Biden is all concerned about, you know, designing body armor, maternity flight suits. I mean, really? Are you kidding me? Seriously, we're going to send women up in jets, flying them with, you know, large, carrying, carrying their babies. I mean, I just, the dangers of that go without saying. And um, he's talking about updating their hairstyles. The President of the United States is making a speech about updating women's hairstyles in the military. Uh, he said we're going to change the culture and habits. Uh, we're going to make sure women are safe and respected, that they can apply for whatever they want to apply for. Could I just say the military has never, ever, ever been designed uh, for career advancement or to you, – you don't have a right to serve in the military. Ask all those – your grandfathers – who were turned down because they had uh, they couldn't see properly. Ask anyone who's tried to apply to fly an airplane who can't pass the eye test. They can't fly an airplane. There are limitations. There are hard rules. There are fitness tests. And in the past, it was a given that if you couldn't pass those, you can't do those jobs. And so women have a definite disadvantage if you're talking about going to combat. They have uh, they have menstrual periods every thirty days. Uh, they have privacy needs that men don't have. They they can't even you know use restroom facilities. They need restroom facilities. They can't. They cannot be in a trench with a bunch of men, uh, changing their clothes and going to the bathroom and managing. Men are equipped in every way to deal in combat in ways that women are not. <clears throat> and so, Tucker Carlson was right to make the comments that he did. I want to read you a couple of things that he said besides that. He said, while China's military becomes more masculine, and I've told you already they are doing genetic altering, as it's assembled the world's largest navy, our military, as Joe Biden says, needs to become more feminine. Whatever feminine means anymore since men and women no longer exist. The bottom line is it's out of control, and the Pentagon is going along with it. Again, this is a mockery of the U.S. military and its core mission, which is, what is its core mission? Now, let's see. No, according to Joe Biden, it's to uh, make sure women are safe and respected, that they can get any a position that they want. <clears throat> they uh, have a right when they're pregnant to serve in any—it it shouldn't stop them. Uh, we're going to design suits. We're going to do this for transgender soldiers, too. And we're going to be ready to fight in these wars, right? Especially the one that's inevitably coming with China. Well, the, in response to this, of course, <clears throat> you don't—you may not know, you may know— that the Marines came after Tucker Carlson. It was amazing because, you know, generally 
you do understand that active duty military cannot weigh in on political things. Uh, just like the FBI, that was a rule for them too. They can't campaign. They can't say political things. Judges can't either. Um, but this was a complete change because uh, several generals came after Tucker Carlson. The military came after a talk show host on Fox, which was a pretty stunning development and actually pretty frightening. We know that our military is becoming more politicized, and we certainly know the Pentagon is off the rails. It has been for a long time, and that's why they continue to undermine Donald Trump when he tried to impose different policies than they had enjoyed under President Obama. Oh, President Obama, of course, removed so many of the really fine people serving in the military because they opposed his positions on issues like this. And so there was a wholesale retooling of the military during the eight years of Barack Obama. And so a lot of fine people left. You remember even down to the chaplains, many of them were just forced to leave or it was made so miserable miserable for them because of their beliefs that they ended up leaving. But I want to read to you uh, a couple of things, the reasons why, if I have to explain, why I feel the way I do it. I'm going to borrow from Daniel Horowitz, my good friend Daniel, who writes some great stuff. His title is From General Patton to Feminist. Generals Wearing Masks and Promoting Motherhood as Warfare. And Dan Daniel writes, Be all that you can be, where men can be women and women can be men, where soldiers must wear masks all day on American bases but can't carry firearms, where the entire purpose of the military is to fight other countries' battles but not the one at our border, where getting women to act like men is the only religion allowed in the military except when they invariably can't meet the standards and the military lowers them to make them fair for all. So um, I want to go further in what Daniel points out here. Car oh, he quotes Tucker Carlson saying, Pregnant women are going to fight our wars. It's a mockery of the U.S. military. The Pentagon is going along with it, and that this entire feminine focus is a mockery of the U.S. military and its core mission, which is, winning wars. And so um, Daniel goes on to talk about these feminist generals who made up memes uh, to come after Tucker about how women are, you know, are able to do more than men are able to do, really creating a false narrative because we know, honestly, that that's not true. I'll, I'll give you some examples of this. There is a gender-neutral army combat fitness test, and uh, the female soldiers have been failing at a rate of 65%. So now they've decided that they're going to have to change that test so that it could be fair to both genders. Now, what happens when you do that? What happens when you do that is that you dumb down the tests. You make it easier. And the men who are supposed to be protecting this country are weaker than they could be because the standards are not as high and the women cannot progress past what they can progress. Women's upper body strength is never going to be what a man's upper body strength is. But the, the military's answer to that is to change the test, alter the test, make it easier for everyone. A Pentagon study has found up to 65% of women were failing the ACFT, that's that fitness test, compared to just 10% of men. Uh, and last, last uh, month, the Army Times said that the Army is looking at means to apply those scores based on gender to account for biological differences. So the Marine Corps under General Joseph Dumford, you might remember this, this is when Barack Obama started uh, trying to push for this. 
aggressively. And the Marine Corps was the only group at that time that held out. They're the ones now actually coming after Tucker Carlson. So my, what a few years difference it makes. But the Marine Corps under General Joseph Dunford uh, did a study of 400 Marines, and 300 were male, 100 were female. They did it over the course of several months. It cost $36 million to do this. And here's what they found. Overall, the all-male teams outperformed teams with integrated female members 69% of the time. All-male teams were faster than integrated teams in every tactical movement. The all-male teams were more accurate shots than the integrated teams across the weapons system. The all-male teams performed much better at routine combat tasks. When climbing an 8-foot wall, male Marines would toss their packs to the top, whereas female Marines required regular assistance getting their packs to the top. When carrying out mock evacuations of casualties, all male teams were much faster, except in cases where the evacuee was carried in a fireman's carry, and then it was usually a male Marine doing the carrying. Female participants sustained significantly higher injury rates and levels of fatigue than their male counterparts. In the infantry training battalion, females were injured at six times the rate of male Marines. I could go on with this because uh, I remember I talked with Elaine Donnelly of the Center for Medical, Military, Military Readiness. She's been my friend for years, and uh, she's, she's the one who tracks this as closely as anyone that I know. Uh, this has been a battle that we've been fighting for a long time. So now, <clears throat> on the heels of all of this, the next thing that they're proposing is a draft, a draft for women as well as men. This has never been the case. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of a, an earlier decision that only men should be drafted, and there's a reason for that, because men are more ready, men are more capable. And the idea, of course, of a draft is uh, some attack, and you have to you know, bring... Uh, your soldiers in and train them and be able to defend your nation, your homes, your cities, your families. Women are not equipped to do that, and yet now they're talking about drafting women. That's the next horizon. So um, there's a lot to talk about with that, and we will talk about it as the thing progresses or regresses, we might say. But coming up next, we have a retired Special Forces gentleman joining us who is in a very unique position to talk about this. And a lot of other things, too, because he's running for Congress. So stay tuned. It's going to be an interesting discussion. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. As Seattle police protected their union headquarters Monday, someone threw a Molotov cocktail at officers. It's an escalation of the violence that is apparently being called for by some Black Lives Matter leaders. At a rally demanding the city council override Mayor Jenny Durkin's veto of a measure that would cut 100 police officers, former city council candidate Sean Scott told the Seattle Times the rate of legislative change was moving much quicker when there were cop cars on fire in this city. A short time later, body cam video shows a police officer officer assaulted as he makes an arrest. One of 22 on a Labor Day where there was no rest. It's extremely alarming that somebody that almost had a seat at the table at the council level that got 16,000 votes in this city is pushing that kind of violent rhetoric. 
In Portland, police tactics appear to be shifting. Cops arrested 59 protesters on Saturday, a night that saw one man accidentally set himself on fire. It's the most arrest since the protest began more than three months ago. At the state capitol in Salem, a pro-President Trump rally turned violent when some battled with counter-demonstrators. Police arrested two men on assault charges. It followed an editorial in the Oregonian calling for an end to the nightly BLM protests. The paper writing that it's taken weeks for state and city leaders to issue unified statements condemning violence at these protests betrays an appalling lack of courage. That was Dan Springer from last uh, last September, I think it was. And, of course, he's reporting on what's happening out west in Oregon and Washington State uh, that you'd have to be brain dead to not know that there's been trouble in those states for probably almost two years now. Uh, we've covered it extensively. Uh, but the, the, the truth is that at the same time, there are such fine people in Oregon and Washington State. I find a lot of military people, a lot of special forces are from the west coast and northwest. And uh, our next guest is one of those. Uh, he was, uh, he's from, I think, the Portland area in Oregon, and his name is Joe Kent. He is a retired Army Special Forces veteran, uh, and he's now running for Congress in Washington in District 3. Joe, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, Joe, I want to talk about your military experience in a bit. But right now, I just want to talk to you about a guy who grew up in, in Oregon. When you were growing up in Oregon, what was that state like? So growing up in the uh, 80s and the 90s, um, you know, Portland, Oregon was, a, I think, a small growing city, um, still very suburban. And, you know, you, you could drive pretty much in, I'd say, 10, 15 minutes in any, any cardinal direction. You'd, you'd be back out in the countryside. Um, it was a very manageable city. Uh, the Pacific Northwest is absolutely beautiful. We have... Amazing forest, Cascade Mountain Range. You can be at the beach in an hour. You can be into the high desert within about two hours. So it's it's an outdoorsman and a an outdoorsman's paradise, and then also just a great place to be a young boy. Um, I grew up there, uh, very active in the Boy Scouts. So I got out in the Cascade Mountains, and it was pretty amazing. I mean, Portland was always somewhat of a left leaning, you know, self described progressive city, but in the eighties and nineties, it was still very. I think much more civil people had their political differences and they actually discussed them. And it was, you know, what I would consider to be very normal, but the normal, the normalcy that uh, I think makes America very unique where people can have political differences, but still be neighbors and, and have constructive conversations and, and healthy relationships with each other. Yeah. I guess that's the es- essence of the first amendment, isn't it? Uh, that we could say what yeah, we want and, and, and yet live together. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, Joe, I have been to Portland. I, it is beautiful. I've been to the Northwest, and I, I know some. I know some very. In fact, I have to say, I, I'm not uh, connected to them, but I have lots of family out there. But on my mother's side, I just found that out. A lot of Oregonians are 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 in my yeah. family. Uh, but I do you think the reason why would you agree that there are a lot of special forces guys that come from that part of the country? There is, yeah. The uh, the Cascade Mountains, I think, has a way of you know really leaving an impact on uh, young men and some young women to go out and seek out adventures every every weekend. And then the military is the uh, the, the next natural progression, I think, for going out yeah, and doing that yeah. professionally for the country. All right. So you uh, served, and I, again, we're going to talk about your particular service in a minute, but you were gone in a way for like 20 years and you come back. And uh, right. so tell me, what were your thoughts when you came back to your home state uh, after all those years of fighting for your country? Yeah, it's it's really actually pretty sad. Um, I, when 
we see cities take a real big downturn, like we've seen Portland and Seattle and Olympia, beautiful Pacific Northwest cities, there's usually a huge economic reason. But the opposite is true here. It's a cultural issue. So the left-wing values have just gone so completely insane is the only way that I can really describe it. But I do think there's a purpose behind all of it to drive a very left-wing agenda. But what 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 that's uh, created is a culture where people will tolerate violence. Um, they've tolerated it now tolerated it now for almost two years, especially this last year in an election season. There's this culture now that has become prevalent in the Pacific Northwest that anything is necessary to take down the system slash oppression, which is all completely a narrative. But people have been able, people have been radicalized, I think, by the left wing's narrative in our universities, the left wing's narrative in our um, media that America is a bad place. So it's justified a lot of violence um, and just absolute destruction in these beautiful cities. And again, these cities were on the cusp of becoming like the second Silicon Valley. I mean, Portland's economy was really thriving. We were, we were attracting businesses. Washington has great uh, great natural resources and also a pretty lucrative tax system. So they were enticing businesses to come into these places. And that was until this last year when between COVID lockdowns, ex exacerbated by activist governors, um, but then the nightly anarchy and the inability to deal with it. And really the scary part for me is how regular citizens, particularly in the cities, were too afraid to speak out against the the violence because they had bought in so heavily into the narrative that this you know system I'm using air quotes needed to be brought down by any means necessary and, and people were too afraid to speak out because they didn't want to be labeled as fascists or racists you know it's it's pretty pretty amazing for me to see here in America yeah me too I'm curious because I've had kind of a front row seat I've been in DC for a long time and had kind of a front row seat to watching the Pentagon, Pentagon swing left, or let's say lurch, let's say drive at full speed Indeed. to the left. Um, and, but, but the Pentagon still, I find the rank-and-file soldiers are not political for the most part. I know now, they, now right. we have to have this uh, purity test for them, and this is new uh, in terms of their yeah. political views. But did you learn your understanding of the left or of the, the mind of the totalitarian or the Marxist left, whatever you want to call it? Did you learn that in the military, Joe, or is this something you've picked up as a civilian? So uh, serving overseas, I really witnessed the, uh, the aftermath of totalitarian rulers. I was in uh, Iraq after the fall of Saddam, but then also the, the void filled um, with the fall of Saddam, a bunch of violent groups that pr professed a radical ideology. Um, and they did so by labeling the other part of the, the population as um, evil. And they had to take any means necessary to get rid of them. So it, it was rather stunning to see a city like Baghdad, from my experience, which was by um, any standard, a cosmopolitan, well-educated city. But once the, once the regime there fell, watching people go back into their different sectarian identities and label the other people who they had just recently been neighbors with as the other and as someone that needed to go out and have violence taken against them. To me, seeing that reflected on the streets of Portland, Oregon, you know, in Seattle, I, I think is, is very frightening. And it's something that I think veterans who've seen this firsthand, we, we can feel it because it, it has a feeling. And unfortunately, America, it's, it, it's a good thing that Americans don't know what that feeling is, but it's also scary because they can't identify it like I think maybe Europeans can because they've lived through it more recently. 
Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what I felt when I came back. Yeah, Joe, I get that. I, um, I'll just, my audience knows this, but I, I've had a lot of experience in, let's just say suppressed countries, oppressed. I lived in Berlin, Germany right. when the Cold War was on and, and okay. used to pass, pass through Checkpoint Charlie. And I've recently been talking about how it felt to enter East Berlin how it reminds me now of the suppression with the masks and all of the uh, the onerous rules, the people watching yes. and pe- the anger and all that. It really it reminds me of that so much. And I with you. I don't think that our Americans have been so sheltered and so blessed that they don't. Exactly they're not right. used to this. I've lately come to understand why our founding fathers, in the in the preamble to the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, talked about how we have a right to for to life, liberty. Mm-hmm. And the pursuit of happiness. I, I read that and understood it sort of, you know, because I know the words, but I never really understood until we've been experiencing that threat right now to our very lives, our liberties, and our pursuit of happiness. We're no, pursuit of happiness is just, forget it. I think people are being made miserable yeah. by the control that we see. All right, well, so I'm guessing, tell me if I'm wrong, that you then embraced President Trump. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, for for a multitude of reasons, uh, when Trump came onto the scene, I was still in the military, and I was pretty disenfranchised with with actually both parties. I mean, President Bush right after nine eleven, he did the right thing, and we we struck back, but we quickly deviated into nation building wars that never seemed to end. And then Obama came in, and he actually doubled down on those wars and started some new ones, despite you know sounding really good on a teleprompter and saying he wasn't going to do that. That's what he did. So I was pretty disenfranchised, and watching Trump come in. And really speak truth and say, "Hey, this has been a waste of time, and the Republicans have behind been behind all of it." Um, he won me over, um, and then I had some some very personal interactions with him um, when my late wife was killed fighting for the country. She was uh, in the Navy uh, fighting with special operations against ISIS and killed uh, fighting ISIS in Syria. She was killed about a month after Trump tried to get us out of Syria. Um, so I watched, I witnessed firsthand because I was in the intelligence community at the time the the establishment really turn on trump when he tried to end a war like he said he was going to and so that that made me i was already a very strong trump supporter but that made me start start to speak out about how right president trump was and how the the establishment was really working against him i'm going to ask you more questions about the things you just mentioned in a minute Uh, but to come back to the more present you moved your your family and we'll talk about that in a second too Uh, to to Oregon to get I mean to uh, Washington State to a district that you felt was a better place to raise your kids and that's Washington District Three and you decided to run for Congress there now tell us about why you did that and who you would be running against so exactly so after after my wife was killed I um, resigned from my position in the intelligence community moved from D.C. back to um, back to home. Um, my, my parents were still in Portland, so I wanted to pick a spot that was close enough to them, but I, I didn't want to live in uh, in Portland. So I moved to Washington District 3 because I know that Washington District 3, which is right on the Oregon and Washington border, so it's southwest Washington. It's the only chunk of red that touches the Pacific Ocean in the continental United States. So <laughs> I knew that this is a place that had traditional American values, um, and I felt good raising my children here. So we were represented by Jamie Herrera Butler, who wasn't the strongest Republican, but we tolerated it. Um, that was up until she voted for the impeachment of President Trump and then volunteered to be the star witness. So 
in, in the Shannon impeachment trial. So I, seeing her do that, I realized that this district that I thought was safe had an X painted on it um, by an establishment person who didn't have our best interest in mind anymore. So I've I've never been someone who can sit back and say, well, isn't that terrible? I, I need to do something. So I got a uh, did my FEC filings and threw my name in the, in the hat because I want to go fight for this district to, to help hold it down for traditional American values and restore our voices to D.C. Are you on the on the very front end of this? I mean, did you just when did you make this decision? Is it recently, or is you know how long have you been running? So I think I've been a politician officially now for a little bit over a month. So it's pretty recent. <laughs> you know, please do me a favor. Don't become a politician. <laughs> right. uh, I'm not I think that's not the, to. the reason. I think people love President Trump is just that he speaks, spoke, and still does speak so plainly. Uh, I, I just think they, exactly. they're sick of the pretense and uh, the, the the beautiful hair and the tailored suits and the cowardice yep. uh, and the duplicity. We're sick of it. And so um, we need plain spoken men, which means we won't agree on everything. You know, there are going to be disagreements and yeah, uh, people, are gonna, yeah, right. people are going to have to pick their fights and you are too going to have to pick your fights. All right. So um, in this district, then, um, do you ha- I'm sure you've had people kind of look at the odds of you winning this. Is she a popular candidate, a popular congresswoman, or how do you see that? What are people saying about the, the chances of you winning this? So because the, the 3rd district's located surrounded by very dark blue failing Democrat cities, People here were okay with just having a Republican, I think, up until now. So 10 years ago, the political landscape was different, and she's been in office now for about 11 years. So people really saw that it's one thing to have just a Republican in office, and that gets us really nowhere when they won't stand and fight when it counts. And and Representative Butler just never stood and fought when it counted. So right now, people are mad. Um, the the base that got her elected and the base that got President Trump elected in this district is fired up. They're mobilized. They want change. They don't want politicians. So I think and I feel that I have a very strong chance of, of winning this and then holding this district. Yeah. Anything about you want to, like, will you see what's happening in Congress? Are you sure you want to be oh, there? Yeah. And I'm just asking. <laughs> you know, I. <laughs> just I, asking. Right. I. I I want to be there to fight because they are moving at such a, a breakneck pace right now between the House and Senate Democrats and what and what President Biden is doing that we just need to go and we need to fight. I mean, yeah. it's it's a nasty swamp and I don't want any, any part of that, but I do want to go at least be able to push back. Yep. Well, I'm all for that. So, hey, Joe, you've got this great story. You've sort of you've mentioned it in a few sentences. When we come back, I, I, I want to hear your story. Uh, I want you to, I want to talk about it. And then also about today's military, just what you think about that too. So we'll have that discussion. Joe Kent is my guest. And again, he's running for a Congress in Washington's District 3, for those of you listening out there. And we'll be right back after this. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. 
Hey, Sandy Rios, back with you. My guest is Joe Kent. Joe is a former Army Special Forces veteran who is now running for Congress in Washington State. Uh, if you just joined us, he grew up in Portland, and uh, there's trouble in Portland. Did you read about that, anyone? There's also st- uh, trouble in Washington State, but not in the area where he lives. And so uh, he's uh, challenging Jamie Herrera uh, Butler for the, her seat. Uh, Joe is a an Army Special Forces veteran with 20 years of combat experience. And so, Joe, I want to ask you, can you say, I mean, there's what designation of Special Forces? Can you talk about this? Can you tell us what you were in? <laughs> Yeah, certainly. So I, I started out my career in uh, Ranger Regiment, and then I went to Special Forces. So Green Berets is how most most people know that, and then served in some other special operations units. But Green Beret is probably the the easiest and quickest way to, to describe right. what I did. Okay, all right, very good. Can you you've you hinted a little bit about what you had done? Can, what can you tell us about the kinds of things that you did? Your specific expertise. Sure. So um, my. Specific, specific expertise is really in uh, unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency type of operations. So special forces guys go out and we we build networks of uh, local fighters and local leaders to help uh, overthrow either a repressive government um, like we did with Saddam Hussein, like we did with the Taliban, um, or we work on taking out uh, terrorist networks and terrorist leaders like Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS. So I spent the vast majority of my career um, in Iraq. So my group, my my special forces group was regionally oriented. And so Iraq was kind of our baby. So every year of the Iraq war proper, um, I was over there for, you know, at least seven months, sometimes longer, working with local Iraqis, being able to talk with them to understand what was going on the ground and then develop either kinetic operations where we go out and, and um, do a military strike against bad guys or working with the Iraqis so that they could go do it on their own. Um, that was a big part of of what we do in special operations. Um, did, so yeah, I spent did, m- most of my career, you know, kind of on the ground level. Did you see American Sniper? I did. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of that? Was that was that realistic? You, you know, there was some like Hollywood over the top stuff, but I thought they did a really good job of kind of um, capturing the feel. They kind of got the uniforms and the lingo right, and so to yeah. me. It it felt it felt right. Yeah, it was a good movie. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Pretty pretty spellbinding. All right. So you were there. Were you then in Iraq when Saddam Hussein was found in that hole and all of that? Were you part of any of that? I was, I was in Iraq, and we were going after some other members of Saddam's uh, inner circle. I was not on the mission where they captured Saddam, but I was I was in Iraq then. Yeah. All right. So, um, Joe, you've mentioned your wife. I just, first of all, I know I liked that she was in the military also. How did you guys meet? So we actually ended up, uh, we met the first time in Baghdad in 2007. She was running an intelligence briefing on, on where some bad guys were that we were going after. And I, I talked with her real briefly, um, regretted not getting her phone number, her email, because we were both very busy <laughs> and I didn't see her again for didn't see her again for six more years when we both ended up at a uh, a pretty unique <laughs> unit that that combines special operations people like me, SEALs and Rangers with intelligence professionals like Shannon. So she was an Arabic linguist and a, a SIGINT and a human. So signals intelligence and human intelligence collection specialist. Yeah. So we okay. ended up in the same unit. So, but was she military then or was she uh, like CIA or something like that? Or can you say? No, I don't she know. was military. She was military. Military. Yeah, she was Navy. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So you didn't see her for six 
six years. That's a long time. And when you saw her yeah. again, I'm assuming she was still available. So, so tell me, I would. Do you mind uh, talking about sure. your courtship? I hope it's not too painful for you, Joe. I don't. I'm not trying to put you through something oh. painful, but it's just nice to hear, and it's nice probably for you to tell me. Yeah, no, I, 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 I love talking about my wife. I can talk about her all day. So we, uh, we hadn't seen each other in like six years, and we ended up at this, uh, this unit and in, in, in training together. So we uh, were both dealing with the stresses of a, uh, a very high intense course they were putting us through. Um, and so any kind of spare moment we had, we, we'd uh, go out and get dinner and, you know, talk about, mostly talk about Iraq and talk about the war. Uh, Cause she had, at that point she had done um, five combat deployments and then a couple other deployments to some other places. So, and that had been my life up to that point as well. So we, we really bonded over having these fast paced, you know, careers being very goal oriented towards yeah. serving our high country adrenaline. on the in the middle east high <laughs> adrenaline yeah. for sure high so adrenaline, we, yes yeah like you were living yeah. that that uh, 24 whatever that thing was on television that series you were living that so how do two people that fall in love in those circumstances how in the world do you con- con- you know contemplate a marriage like what you, how in the world do you decide what that would look like if you even tried to get married so we didn't put a heck of a lot of like thought into it it just really felt right I mean, we, we fell in love and i i did I, I didn't really ever ask her to marry me and she didn't ask me to marry her we just sort of started planning a marriage like when it would fit in with both of her schedules and then yeah. we went and did it and then the kid the kids followed right after that too you know we just um she was a master planner so i think she did a lot more deliberate planning than than i did <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, she, she really just made it all, all work out. So, so it, it, was she know. working all the time? She had that you, you guys have two boys. So was she working, mm-hmm. carrying the, was she doing her work while she was pregnant with the boys and stay and she was still in Iraq or how did that look? So she didn't um, deploy while we were um, having kids. We had our kids kind of back to back. So she wasn't going every season deploying, but she was working um, at the NSA um, so doing signals intelligence stuff, uh, at a very high level while she was pregnant and, and, um, you know, when the kids were very, very young, so she was still working full time. And then in that time I was still deploying a lot. So I, uh, I was gone for most of the, both, most of both pregnancies I was deployed for. And then I would come home and in time for the, our boys to be born. And then I would usually back out the door. So at any given time, Shannon was, you know, being a sort of a, a single mother while pregnant. And then with one, one kid <laughs> and working a full-time job and working okay. on her master's degree on the side. So she wow. was just an incredibly motivated person and, you know, just really knew how to work a schedule. And a wife probably that, uh, understood when you had to go out that back door understood because she'd been there beside you that's an amazing that's an amazing union okay so was dc home base for you guys then before you before going back out north to the northwest yes it was so yeah we were in the dc area yeah okay well all right so then uh we know because you've already told us that shannon died uh in 2019 how in the world did that happen so she was deployed. So after we had our, our, our two children, it was kind of time for her to get back on the road and, and deploy again. So ISIS was still a huge threat in 2017, 2018. So Shannon went over there for the, the final push to take out ISIS. So she was serving on the front lines of a special operations unit, working as a uh, intelligence specialist, really, because this was her, her fifth combat deployment and she had worked extensively in Iraq and Syria. She knew the ISIS target very, very well. 
you know, down to what individuals' names were because she had tracked them at the NSA as well. So she was she was out there for the that final push. And then, like I, I said earlier, she uh, deployed right after Thanksgiving of 2018 and then was killed in January of 19 by a suicide bomber um, when she was out conducting an operation. But she was killed right um, after right after president Trump tried to get the troops out and the military kind of began their deliberate slow roll between the military and the state department. They really kind of turned on president Trump and attempted to keep our, well, I say attempted, but our troops are still over there. So they ended up keeping our troops in, in Syria. So Joe, uh, you have two boys and she's killed and you're deployed. Who has the boys at this point? So they were with my parents. All right. And so then you have to make a big decision because you are 20 years uh, in special operations. And I'm yeah. sure that you were, I'm guessing that once you get used to living that lifestyle, it's kind of hard to give it up because it's hard, <laughs> hard to have a normal life. It really is hard to have a normal life after doing, when you have all those yeah. abilities too, and you're young. Yeah. So what, what was that like? Because you had to then step aside to take care of the boys. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was hard, but at the same time, it was very clear cut. So the same day that Shannon was, was out doing the operation where she was killed on, I was out doing something as well in a, in a different country, but I was in harm's way as well. So I, it kind of dawned on me an hour or two after I learned that she was killed. I was like, well, had I really screwed up today, my kids could have become orphans. So I, uh, I knew then I had to, I had to step aside from the lifestyle that I had lived as an, the, my entire adult life, really. Yeah. So that's that was a big reason why I moved back to the the Northwest just to kind of reset and, and focus on my children. Yeah, well, and then you come back and you see what's happened to your home city, Portland. It's like uh, yep. you know, and I I would guess I'm guessing now that when you're used to fighting, you see really bad stuff, and you're used to fighting. Then when you see really bad stuff, and you're not able to fight, it must be maddening. Exactly. I mean, that's a big reason why I'm I'm doing what I'm doing right now. Like I I just. It, it felt horrible to see what was going on. And, and I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of why it was happening. And, and like we talked about earlier, I just didn't think a lot of Americans saw that. I think people are waking up. I think 2020 woke a lot of people up. But, you know, again, it was, you know, just the events of 2020, the way we saw the government and big tech really turn against the American people. Um, it became clear to me that I had, just had, had to get back in the fight. It's a different fight. It's an information war. But there's a lot of a lot of similarities, so I, I feel very compelled to do this, just like I did in my my you know over 20 years of service overseas. I'm curious about something, and you do not have to agree with me on this. Okay, we might not agree on this, but I really would like to know what you think because there was a big dust up this week that I'm sure you heard about, uh, and that was you know Joe Biden made this uh, speech about women in the military and about uh, special uniforms for pregnant women, about haircuts and about their uh, women needing to be able to advance and a whole bunch of things. And Tucker Carlson responded to it, and then the Pentagon responded to that. I have a very short clip. Let's play that, and then I want to – I just want to know your thoughts about this, given your very special, unique circumstances. Here first is Tucker Carlson and then John Kirby. So we've got new hairstyles and maternity flight suits. Pregnant women are going to fight our wars. It's a mockery of the U.S. military. What we absolutely won't do – is take personnel advice from a talk show host or the Chinese military. All right, so to a couple of things there. Of course, it's the whole issue of women in combat, which you have personal experience and you've paid a high price for that in your own life. The second thing is also the, the military's response uh, becoming very uh, political by coming after a civilian. That's a whole other issue. 
But first of all, how do you feel in retrospect, Joe, about about all this discussion of women in combat? So the, I mean, the Tucker Carlson uh, piece that kind of set it all off, I, I think, got com- of course, it got completely taken out of context. I mean, Tucker's whole point was that the military is focusing on virtue signaling about equality. And the things they're choosing to virtue signal about just really aren't a factor. I mean, they specifically concentrated on pregnant women serving and, and pregnant women aren't deployable. Like women get pregnant. Everyone understands that. But there's so many other jobs they can do in the military while they're pregnant and while the baby is very young that it's not an issue. So for the military to try and throw this to the forefront, to me, is just a massive distraction. And it it really shows that the military is now attempting to go out and, and virtue signal to show that they're on the woke side and to be good with to make good with the media essentially and then to make good with the biden administration it it seems like they're all falling all over themselves right now to say hey i'm on your side don't take me out because biden came in and said that they were going to do the the purity test to make sure there was no you know air quotes again extremists in the ranks so now it seems like the brass because the brass they're all dc survivors they're political animals they they want to show that hey i was never really with trump man like it's not me look i'll we'll make We'll make hairstyles and nail polish the priority. Just don't, just don't fire me. Is very much what it seems like. It's almost like a hostage statement to me. Um, the women in the military issue is—it's it, complex and it's nuanced. But really, we just need to provide equality of opportunity. And then, if women rise to the occasion and they meet the standard, then that's fine. Then I welcome them into the ranks. And that's all that my wife ever wanted. And that's all the women I know that are the, that are the real deal, and they really want to go serve in these. Um, these difficult positions, they're really no different than the men. They just want a chance to go try out. And and so I, I've been an advocate for letting women go try out because the simple fact is in the global war on terror, we've had women on the front lines fighting for the entire time. And so to not let them come on and try out for a elite unit, I think is a bit hypocritical. But you, I don't think I, I'm t- taking from what you just said, though, you're not for changing the standards or making it easier for women no. to get into. Yep, um, that's what I thought. Cause, because of all the reasons that you and I both know that we don't have time to talk about. Uh, Joe Kent right. is, um, again, running for Congress in Washington's 3rd District. Uh, and you've heard his story and you've heard his heart. So uh, you can do with that what you will. But, Joe, it's really nice to meet you. And I hope that you and I, next time I actually see you, you will be in Washington. That would be very nice. So. God That'd be bless great. You. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you. And Thank I think um, God bless you for taking care of your boys. And heaven only knows what God has in store for you, Joe. So we'll be looking to see that. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. <laughs>